I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we take repeated themes of scripture and we examine them with each other to gain a fresh perspective on ancient topics. This week will be our seventh week of discussing the tabernacle and the items connected to it. And this week we read of several items all lumped together and seemingly thrown together last minute as a sort of a sum up and a catch-all of whatever's left of the tabernacle and its service. At least, that's how it seems to many. But this is not the case as we're going to discover today. This tent, as we have seen, is full of revelations of relationship and how to live with Hashem, the God of all creation the maker of heaven and earth, this God whose very identity is holiness. His nature is a level of holiness that contains a great level of danger for people who are not holy. Merely stepping into his presence will kill a human, any human that attempts to draw close on their own. But despite this, Hashem desires to live in community with humans. He created humans for the purpose of community with him to be his image and to occupy his throne room on earth and serve before him as vassals. And this relationship that God seeks to have with humanity is, in the book of Exodus, steeped in two primary metaphors. The first metaphor is a relationship of that of a father to a son. Exodus 4.22 And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus said Hashem, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And this declaration that Israel is the people chosen to be the sons of God is one that carries over to all who are part of Israel, those who are chosen by God to be his sons. But as with the prodigal son, we have all left him and we've gone our own way. But if we repent and we return to him, he will accept us once again as sons before him, and he'll lead us out of the bondage that has controlled us our entire lives. The second metaphor that's used in the book of Exodus to describe our relationship to Hashem is that of a bride to a husband. Jeremiah 31:32, Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I strengthened their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, by covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. And as Exodus reaches chapter 18, Moses' bride returns to him at the base of Mount Sinai, and in this we begin to see the shift in the focus of text. Israel takes on the role of a bride to Hashem in the events of chapter 19 through 24. They're then steeped in the language of a marriage ceremony. Israel no longer a son who needs to be saved, but rather an intimate partner. A partner with a shared goal, working for a singular outcome. That outcome being the presence of God dwelling on this earth in their midst. A partnership of shared intimacy. A partnership of communication, gifts, and of shared time defined by a mutual love and respect. 
giving and returning of love and honor and a cycle of growth. A relationship in which seed is sown and the fruit of life is borne out into the world, bringing forth life into the world. And these two metaphors, they teach us of our relationship with Him, what we can expect from Him, and it teaches us of what our responsibilities are towards Him. And that's where the tabernacle comes in. It is the tent where a God who is defined by holiness and whose very presence is a danger, and a people who have no option but to live in the midst of death and defilement, where they can come together and have relationship with each other. You see, this tent is the place of relationship, but relationship with the holy God can be a very dangerous thing. And so instructions must be given for how to avoid the dangers that are inherent in a relationship with a God such as Hashem. And this week's Parsha gives us some insight into just how to avoid death in the presence of a holy God. Now, there are four parts to this week's Parsha, and each one discusses a separate item or communal event that creates for us guidelines of holiness before Hashem. They may seem disconnected, but they do have a singular theme that runs through them, a theme that we once again see reflected in the creation story. Two weeks ago, we looked at how the tabernacle is reflected in the Garden of Eden and the role that God has for man to play in all ages, a role of priests to all. Well, this week we're going to go back to the very beginning. Creation itself is reflected in the tabernacle. This is something that I've hinted at before, but this week we're going to dive in with both feet and see what we can learn about our relationship with Hashem when we examine the tabernacle in light of the creation as recorded in Genesis chapter 1. Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 38. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel to register them, then each one shall give an atonement for his life to Hashem. When you register them so that there is no plague among them, when you register them, every one among those who are registered is to give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the holy place, twenty geras being a shekel, and half shekel to the contribution of Hashem. Everyone passing over to be registered from twenty years old and above gives contribution to Hashem. The rich does not give more, and the poor does not give less than half a shekel when you give a contribution to Hashem and make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the silver of the atonement from the children of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of appointment, and it shall be to the children of Israel for remembrance before Hashem to make atonement for yourselves. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, And you shall make a basin of bronze, with its stand also of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of appointment and the altar, and shall put water in it. And Aaron and his sons shall wash from it their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of appointment or when they come near the altar to attend, to burn an offering made by fire to Hashem, they wash with water lest they die. And they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die, and it shall be a law forever to them, to him and his seed throughout their generations. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, And take for yourself choice spices, five hundred shekels of liquid myrrh, and half as much, two hundred and fifty of sweet-smelling cinnamon, and two hundred and fifty of sweet-smelling cane and five hundred of cassia, according to the shekel of the holy place, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make from these a set-apart anointing oil, a compound, blended, the work of a perfumer. It is holy anointing oil. And with it you shall anoint the tent of appointment and the ark of the witness, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of ascending offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. And you shall set them apart, and they shall be most holy. Whatever touches them is to be set apart. 
and you shall anoint Aaron and his son, and set them apart to serve as priests to me. And speak to the children of Israel, saying, This is a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the flesh of a man, and make no other like it according to its composition. It is holy. It is set apart to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on a stranger, shall be cut off from his people. And Hashem said to Moshe, Take sweet spices, fragrant gum and cinnamon and golbanam and clear frankincense, with these sweet spices all in equal amounts. Then you shall make of these an incense, a compound, work of a perfumer, salted, clean, set apart. And you shall beat some of it very fine, and put some of it before the witness in the tent of appointment where I meet with you. It is most holy to you. And the incense which you make, do not make any for yourselves according to its composition, for it is holy to you, for Hashem. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. Well, it has relatively recently been proposed by several scholars of ancient Near East literature and biblical studies that the text of Genesis 1 is in fact a temple text. And after examining their evidence, I tend to agree with them. The text of Genesis 1 describes the creation and the dedication of a space for God to live in, to rule, and to reign. Now it takes seven days to complete the entirety of the process, and as we look to the instructions for the tabernacle, we discover that its instructions are broken into seven distinct parts. Now this is something that I brought up in the last two weeks, and so I'll not go a whole lot further into it at this time. But if we turn to Leviticus 8 and 9, we discover that the consecration of the tabernacle took seven days, and on the eighth day, service in the tabernacle began. Leviticus 9.1, and on the eighth day, it came to be that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And if we turn to 1 Kings 8, we discover the same thing in connection to the temple. Seven days to consecrate the temple, and Solomon decided at the end of the first seven days to add another seven days. And if we look at the timing of this event, we discover that seven days were for Sukkot, and seven days were set aside specifically for the celebration of the dedication of the temple. And then on the eighth day, the temple began its service. 1 Kings 8, 65-66 And Solomon at the time performed the festival and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamat to the Wadi of Egypt, before Hashem our God. Seven days and seven days. On the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their tents, rejoicing and glad of heart for all the goodness that Hashem had done for his servant David and for Israel his people. And if we search scripture, we find that on nearly every instance, the eighth day describes a time of a fresh start, a new beginning or a new status, this new start of life with a fresh outlook or fresh purpose. Now, why do I mention this? What does the eighth day have to do with this particular Parsha? Well, it allows us to make the connection necessary between the tabernacle and the temple and the days of creation. Six days of creation and sanctification. Six days of separation and definition. And the seventh day of the king sitting on his throne, resting as he rules over his domain. Psalm 132.8 Arise, O Hoshem, to your place of rest, you and the ark of your strength. God rests in his tabernacle, in his holy place, and in the same place as the ark of the witness. Rest of this sort was un- understood by ancient cultures and spoken of in ancient writings that are not limited to just biblical texts to be what a king did when he subdued all of his enemies and had taken up his throne. And so on the eighth day, man was brought into the temple of Eden and given the charge of a Levite in connection to the space of worship, to work it and to keep it, or better translated, to serve and to guard the garden. 
Numbers 3, 6-7 says, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, and they shall serve him and shall guard his duty and the duty of all the congregation before the tent of appointment to do the service of the dwelling place. And so man took up his place. But if we turn just one page earlier than the Garden of Eden narrative in Genesis 2, we will discover a repeated theme throughout the entirety on each of the days of creation. And if you're paying attention to the text for this week, we're going to find that same theme discussed in each of these four items that are present in this Parsha. So first, let's go through the four sections and do a bit of discussion on each and look at what each demonstrates. And then we're going to return to discover just how it is that these four parts are connected to the creation story and then what we can do with this information. So the first item that is under discussion is that there will be a census coming up among the people of Israel. And verse 11 through 16 says that when this census occurs, that a half shekel of silver is to be given by each person counted regardless of their status in the community. From the poorest to the greatest, everyone is to give the same amount. Why? Well, there's a multifold purpose that's given in this instruction. There are three reasons highlighted in the text, and they are each connected to the phrase, an atonement for the nefesh. The first time this phrase occurs is in verse 12. Each one shall give an atonement for his life, so that there is no plague among them when they are registered. So the question that follows is, why would there be a plague when the census is taken? Well, in the ancient Near East, the census was taken for a specific reason. It was done in order to discover what kind of military might a king could project. Only the men of fighting age were counted in any census in the ancient Near East, including the one coming up. But if we are taking a census in order to determine our military might, what does that tell us about our faith in Hashem? That we need men to accomplish His will. That the strength of men will carry the day. But from one end to the other in Scripture, it is not the strength of man that accomplishes anything. And a census of the sort is one that God will foil by then killing off some of the number that was just counted, by lessening your power and making your census worthless, as you will no longer have an accurate assessment of your might. So the first time that this phrase, an atonement for his nefesh, we, we discovered that the silver half-shekel is given in order to avoid God's judgment because of our own lack of faith and trust in human power. And we discover in this something that we will discuss in the opening chapters of Numbers. The purpose of the census in the Torah was not to determine military might. It was for the purpose of having the entirety of the people of Israel represented before God in the tabernacle. And this is highlighted in the existence of the phrase, a contribution to Hashem is used three times in three verses. And then we will see that this idea is explicitly stated in just a moment. Now, the second reason for the half-shekel contribution is laid out in verse 15, and it is as an instruction for the people themselves. Everyone gives the same amount. The rich, the poor, everyone in between. All in the community, they are equal in the eyes of Hashem. He shows no partiality as humans show partiality based on status and income and all of the metrics that humans use to determine a person's place. In Hashem's kingdom, all are part of the kingdom to an equal degree. Some serve in different capacities that have more honor or holiness attached to them, but all are equally part of the kingdom. All are Israel. This is highlighted in the parable of the workers in the vineyard that I'm not going to read today, but each worker receives the same wage, regardless of how long they've worked or what they accomplished in the field. 
in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Go read it for yourself. And the third reason for the half shekel that's given in connection to the others. But it's stated in verse 16 that it's for the service of the tent and as the remembrance before Hashem so that the entire community would be represented in the building of the tent. There it is again. The census is not to determine military power, but so that all of Israel might be represented in Hashem's house. You see, there were only several places in the tabernacle where silver was used, and the primary place was in the sockets for all of the poles throughout the structure. Every single socket that a pole or a board was placed in was a silver socket. Silver was the foundation of the tabernacle, and the silver from the census was just a little bit more than what was needed to cast all of the silver sockets throughout the tabernacle compound. And it was on these sockets, it was on this redemptive atonement of every member of Israel that the tabernacle had its foundation. And the way to avoid death, the way to avoid the plague, has to be counted in the community of God, is to be remembered before him in the place of worship and relationship. The second item that's listed in this Parsha is the bronze laver. This is a wash basin that sat in the outer courtyard. Now this wash basin is not to be used by just anyone. Only a select few in the community of Israel ever used this article. The priests that came to serve were required to wash here before serving at either the altar or in the holy place. And if they went from one place to another, from the altar to the holy place, from the holy place to the altar, they were required to wash. And what is the reason given for this washing to occur? We read of it in verses 20 and 21. Lest they die when they come in to serve before Hashem. Now as I opened with the proximity to the Holy One of Israel, it's a dangerous place to be. And those who are called to serve closest to God have a greater responsibility upon them. Failure to respect the Holy One and His holiness results in death. And as we've spoken of previously, Priests who serve before Hashem are to act in a way that is pure and to walk a clean life. Water served one purpose in the worship practices of Israel, and that was to remove uncleanness from a person. And so as we proceed, we notice something fascinating. The way to avoid the plague of the census is to be counted as part of the community of Hashem, to draw near to him as a layman, nothing more but to worship him alone and live in proximity to him and his people. So avoiding death means to draw near to him. But as you draw near to him, the risk of death grows greater due to proximity to his holiness. And we see this reflected as we continue on and proceed through this set of instructions. For the next item to be discussed is the holy anointing oil. Holy anointing oil is a unique blend of five items combined together. And somehow this particular blend is something that bestows holiness upon the articles of the tabernacle, as verse 26 through 28 shows. All items in the service to the tabernacle were to be covered in this oil, including the people who served in the tabernacle. Now it was only the high priest that would have this holy anointing oil poured over their head. The normal priests in their ordination simply had the oil sprinkled on them. And in verse 29, Whatever touches this oil then takes on holiness. It is holy, and as we've seen throughout Scripture, a person that takes on holiness, that has not been granted said level of holiness by God, they die. 
throughout scripture, this idea of exile is intimately connected to death. Being kicked out of the community that knew you and cared for you and being left to your own devices to survive was in many cases in the ancient Near East a sure death sentence. No one in the ancient world lived without others, without community of some sort. It is only our modern world and technology that make it possible today for people to exist alone without others. And any new community that a person showed up to after exile would treat the new person as untrustworthy. Building a life in a new location was a lengthy and often dangerous process. Even from the beginning of scripture, we see this connection. In the day that Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they were to die. And when they ate of the tree, what was the immediate result? Well, it was exile. It was removal from the community, being cast back out into the realm of death, apart from God. Now, as for the items and the oil, what they represent, no one knows. And for at least one of the ingredients, it's anyone's guess as to what it actually is. There have been some scholarly guesses, but that's truly the best that we have. Finally, in this parsha comes the ingredients for the incense, this special blend that was only to be compounded and used for service in the tabernacle. Once again, there are several items in the ingredients list that we really aren't sure what they are. They're anyone's guess at this point. And once again, anyone who makes anything like it, to simply smell it for their own pleasure is to be cut off from Israel. Now, as we spoke of last week, the incense that was burned in the tabernacle is a symbol of our own prayers rising before the Father. And now we read that only this incense was to be offered. No other incense was acceptable. In fact, it's thought that it was Nadav and Avihu they offered strange incense in Leviticus 10, and that the strange fire is a, a pointer to that strange incense. We'll talk more about that when we get to Leviticus chapter 10. So what does this tell us of our own prayer life and how it should be conducted? Well, we must be careful to not water down our prayers by combining them with prayers to other gods or spirit beings. Our prayers must be prayers acceptable to Hashem, and they must be offered to Him alone. Strange fire, a strange spirit, will not be welcome into His presence. Bringing something that's not of Him before Him will lead to death. And that's it. That's the four sections of this week's Parsha. So did anyone out there notice the theme that connects all of these items or events? They each contained instructions within them for how to avoid death when in relationship with God. And the levels of this go from avoiding death while being counted as part of the community, to avoiding death while in his service, to avoiding death while taking on the role of close proximity to God in the community, and those things that are holy to him and him alone. They are each about levels of separation and about recognizing your place in the community and staying there. Now, this speaks nothing at all about one's place in society, but about one's role within the community of God. It's about being who you were created to be regardless of what you want to be. It is about, as we spoke last week, finding your spiritual giftings and working in them. Because your giftings are for the profit of the kingdom. And your gifts determine the place where you are to operate, the role that you are to take on within the community. And once you know your gifts, then don't seek the other gifts that others have been granted for their purpose. Because operating in a gift that you were not gifted, that you were not given, 
it will only lead you to death, yours or others. So how does this connected thread of avoiding death connected to creation as told in Genesis 1? Well, if we go back to Genesis 1 and we examine each day of creation closely, we discover that on each day a separation occurs, and that separation prepares the way for life to continue to flourish. On day one, light is separated from darkness. On day two, the waters above were separated from the waters below in order to create a space between. On day three, water was separated from land. Now, in each of these days, we recognize that there is a type of holiness being created. In day one, darkness cannot exist in light without being eradicated and vice versa. But both are necessary and essential right now. In day two, things of water cannot exist in areas of air. For a creature that breathes air to exist in a place where only waters exist would lead to death. Day three, land and water. Once again, we know that land animals that attempt to live solely in the water will cease to live. One can say that in each of these cases, these places have within them a measure of their own holiness of sorts. And approaching any of these things that are contrary to human life without proper education and preparation leads to death. So let's continue on with the days of creation. On day three, we're introduced to the idea that continues on when we consider this idea of holiness or set-apartness. That is the idea of kinds. The seed-bearing plants produced plants after their own kind. Day four, the sun is separated from the moon and stars, and they're each given their own domain to rule over. They are created for the purpose of populating the light and dark of day one. Day five, animals are created according to their kinds, separated from each other, in order to populate and bring forth life in the waters below and the waters above of day two. Fish and birds are placed into their respective areas, and the mingling of the two, uh, well, it leads to death. And day six, man and beast are created to populate the land of day three. And mingling of the two, it brings forth only death. For man was created to rule over the beasts. We were created to rule over the land and the vegetation. We were given the charge and responsibility and a warning. And we failed all three. We were given a charge to rule the beasts, yet it was a beast that rules us. We were given a responsibility to serve and to guard, but we chose instead to rule and take. And we were warned not to eat of the knowledge of good and bad. But we ignored the warning, and we took of what was not ours, and it led to death. But Genesis 1 it reveals that Hashem has created a world of division and separation and that the separation is for our own good. It is in place to keep us safe. It exists to create the space for life to flourish in the world. We saw this in the story of Noah, as land disappeared and the waters above and below joined back together, and all those who were not prepared to live in this new holy place of only water, they perished. Mixing of things improperly and diluting things that are holy is in another sense to commit adultery. And we'll find this to be true later in Deuteronomy. For what does it mean to adulterate something? Merriam-Webster defines adulterate in this way. To corrupt, debase, or to make impure by the addition of a foreign or inferior substance or element. And as we go through the four parts of this week's Parsha, what do they provide warnings for? 
Each one is, in a way, a warning against adulterating the holiness of God. The first thing, the atonement of silver in the census, do not adulterate the community with those who have not been redeemed. Those who do not give of the silver are not to be counted as Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 through 4. When Hashem your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, he shall also clear away many nations before you. The Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Chivites and the Yebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when Hashem your God gives them over to you, you shall strike them and put them under the ban completely. Make no covenant with them and show them no favor. And do not intermarry with them. You do not give your daughter to his son and you do not take his daughter for your son. For he turns your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the displeasure of Hashem shall burn against you and promptly destroy you. The nation of Israel is composed of those that have been redeemed and who are represented before Hashem in his dwelling place. 1 Corinthians 5 comes into play here as well, as Paul sends out one who claimed to be a brother, but who then blatantly disrespected the sexual purity laws of Israel. The second item of the bronze labor, do not mix corruption with purity. Leviticus 10, verse 9 through 11. Do not drink wine or strong drink, nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of appointment, lest you die. A law forever throughout your generations, so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and to teach the children of Israel all the laws which Hashem has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Or how about Second Corinthians six sixteen through 18 And what union have the dwelling place of God with idols? For you are a dwelling place of the living God, as God has said, I shall dwell in them and walk among them, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says Hashem, and do not touch what is unclean, and I shall receive you. And I shall be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says Hashem the Almighty. The holy and the profane will not mix without drastic and severe consequences. The clean and the unclean, likewise, they will not mix. And we are to know the difference. We are to live this difference. We are to keep the place of worship, our own hearts, pure and undefiled by uncleanness. The third item, the holy anointing oil. Those who are anointed to serve are the only ones who are to have it applied to them. Only those who stood before the Father in his house were raised to a level of holiness that the oil bestowed on the one who served. Because the one who served came closer to Hashem than the common man, and so was under a much stricter level of proper and holy action. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brother, knowing that we shall receive greater judgment. We also find several examples of this particular command being carried out in the New Testament especially when we understand that the oil represents the Holy Spirit, and we see the Holy Spirit being denied some who would misuse it. Acts 8, 9-24 Now there was a certain man called Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city, and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great to whom they were all giving heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This one is the power of God, which is great. And they were giving heed to him because of, for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And when they believed Philip as he brought the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, both men and women were baptized, and Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which took place. 
And when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Master Yeshua. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And Simon, seeing that through the laying on of hands of the emissaries of the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority too, so that anyone I lay hands on shall receive the Holy Spirit. But Kepha said to him, Let your silver perish with you, because you thought to buy the gift of God through money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this evil of yours, and plead with God to forgive you the intentions of your heart. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by unrighteousness. But Simon answering said, Plead with the master for me, so that none of what you said shall come upon me. Simon wished to be anointed to carry out the ministry of God, but he wanted to do so for personal gain, personal renown, personal power. His heart was not right, and so the anointing of the Spirit was denied him, and the role of priest of Hashem was as well. And the final element, the incense. This is an item that is unique to God. It belongs to him and him alone and no other. This is similar to the tree of knowledge of good and bad in Genesis 2. The one thing that is his alone that no man is to partake of for their own personal sensory pleasure, and none other is to be brought before Hashem. Leviticus 10, 1-2, and Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his fire holder and put fire in it and incense on it and brought strange fire before Hashem, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from Hashem and consumed them, and they died before Hashem. And only those who have been granted holiness through anointing are to bring it. Number 16, 34-35. And all Israel who were around about them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And a fire came out from Hashem and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And we cannot combine the prayers to Hashem with the prayers to any other God. Ezekiel 8, 12-18 And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each one in the room of his idols? For they say, Hashem does not see us. Hashem has forsaken the land. And he said to me, You are to see still greater abominations which they are doing. And he brought me to the door of the north gate of the house of Hashem, and I saw women sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You are to see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of Hashem, and there at the door of the Hechal of Hashem, between the porch and the altar, were found twenty-five men with their backs towards the temple of Hashem, and their faces towards the east, and they were bowing themselves eastward to the sun. And he said to me, Have you seen, O son of man? Is it a small matter to the house of Judah to do the abominations which they have done here? For they have filled the land with violence and turned back to provoke me. And see, they are putting up the branch to my nose. Therefore I shall indeed deal in wrath. My eye shall not pardon, nor would I spare. And they shall cry in my ears with a loud voice but I shall not hear them. Hashem is a jealous God. He will not stand the worship of other gods alongside himself. Because this kind of worship is adultery. It is diluting something that is pure and holy, and adultery leads to death. And that is what we see in this Parsha from one end to the other. This idea that was first introduced in the very beginning. 
separation along proper lines creates the place for life to occur. And separation is the integral part of living a life of holiness. The separation of the holy and the profane. The separation of the clean and the unclean. These are absolutely necessary, and we must learn these distinctions, for they are of vital importance. For it is improper understanding, definition, and separation along proper lines that life is found. Separation and sanctification is a vital part of the process of Deresh Chai. For it's in this place that life is found, that holiness is achieved, and that true worship can then be accomplished. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we Seek Life. Shalom.